this episode of 92Y Talks, author Malcolm Gladwell and film producer Brian Grazer discuss their books, David and Goliath and A Curious Mind, respectively, each which explore the hidden patterns of history's triumphant underdogs and the untold intellectual rewards of curiosity. The conversation was recorded on April 7, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Um, welcome. Thank you for coming. We, um, Brian and I uh, have known each other for a long time, and we realized that my paperback was being launched at exactly the same time as his book. Um, and so we thought it would be fun to do something together. And then upon further reflection, we realized that our books, and in fact our lives, are very similar. And, and our body weight. Our body weight is very similar. <laughs> and Brian's book is about curiosity, which is his signature trait. And it was inspired by this habit he has developed over the course of many years of finding interesting people and talking to them. And those conversations have proved to be inspiration for many of his films. Um, I do the same thing, of course, as a journalist. I find interesting people and talk uh, to them. So since we're, we have books come out at the same time, we look the same, and <laughs> we both do the same thing, we thought, well, we might as well just do a thing and together. And oddly, we both have interesting hairdos. And we have interesting, <laughs> yes. And so what we've done, we decided to play a stunt. What we've done is we have bowls in which each of us has put a whole series of names that the other person knows. And we're just going to reach into the bowl and pull out a name, and the other person has to talk about that person. Um, and then further, you have a responsibility. We're going to go to Q&A. You can't ask any question that, you have, that you're curious about. You have to ask questions about the names that we talked about. right? So we're all going to play the game tonight of basically wondering about interesting people. It's going to be a little bit name-droppy at times, but what are you going to do? That's part of the game. That's part of the game. And, but it's, it's, in that sense, it's, it may be name-droppy, but we are, this is the most, this is the least narcissistic author launch, book launch, you will ever attend. Because we're deliberately not talking about ourselves. So I'm going to go first. Brian, that's your bowl. Oh, you're moving along. Okay. I'm going to, I'm not even going to look. I'm just going to pluck one out at random. Lou Wasserman. Lou Wasserman. Okay. <laughs> so now my job is to talk about how I went about meeting Lou Wasserman, what he meant to me, the incident itself. I mean, let's, the whole... be, let's be clear, first of all, about in the day, yeah. Lou Wasserman was, I mean, there is no contemporary equivalent of him, right? No, there's none. He was... Lou Wasserman was, was really, uh, was absolutely the patriarch of the entire entertainment business, predominantly the movie business, but he governed over all entertainment. Um, and worked alongside Jules Stein, who was the founder of MCA, the controlling force of Universal Pictures and television. And Lou Wasserman was a, a, a giant figure in contemporary film and television and, um, and kind of reigned over the entire motion picture business for at least, at least, at least 30 years. And everybody since Lou Wasserman has tried to be Lou Wasserman and has never succeeded at it. In any event, I met, um, it was right after um, college, I got this job as a law clerk, and the law clerk job happened to be, just happened to be at uh, Warner Brothers. So I was a law clerk at Warner Brothers Pictures. I really didn't know anything about the movie business, television business, or entertainment business. And all of a sudden, here I am at uh, Warner Brothers, 
And my job is just to deliver papers probably every day to somebody. That would take about an hour, and I had seven hours of just kind of leisure time. <laughs> but in delivering the papers, I realized I'm delivering these papers to very, very famous people, but they always had people between themselves and me because my job was just to go to the door, knock on the door, hand the papers to the house manager or someone who's going to grab the uh, papers for, say, William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. Enormous book in that day. Um, or my job was to go to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and leave it with a series of, um, leave papers with a series of assistants to Warren Beatty. Well, I decided, I'm going to say, I have to hand them directly to Warren Beatty. <laughs> and it worked. I was able to actually get to meet Warren Beatty and hand him the papers and turn it into a conversation, turn that moment into conversation, as I did with William Peter Blatty, as I did with Hal Ashby, John Frankenheimer, Billy Friedkin, who uh, wrote, or rather directed uh, The French Connection and The Exorcist. And this was going pretty well. And I'm learning a lot of information all at 22 years old. I decide now that I can use this franchise, you know, this office, and I can now every day call somebody new and say, I want to meet your boss for the following reason. So I had my real job at Warner's. Then I would call and I'd say, hi, my name is Brian Grazer. I work at Warner Brothers Business Affairs. This is not associated with studio business, but I want to meet uh, Mr. Mel Brooks for the following reasons. All I need is five minutes, and I do not want a job. And I could, that worked. I'm doing that, and it's working well. I'm, uh, it's like, I'm, I'm like a little Cessna flying through the clouds, trying to get to the other side of understanding how the show business works by meeting these new people. So now I've identified Lou Wasserman, the person that I just mentioned, and it's taken about seven months to get real contact with Lou Wasserman. I eventually meet Melody, his assistant, in the parking lot on the way to her car, and I say, I'm that guy that's trying to meet your boss, blah, blah, blah. She says, fine, I'll organize it. And this is a very long answer. I've only been here once in my life right now. So I get this meeting, and I'm all of a sudden in the elevator. I hit the button. I'm going to the 15th floor to meet Lou Wasserman. I could feel his energy was, you're not coming in this office, kid where everybody else kind of let me, but he looked at me like, you have really nothing to add. Hold on there. And I hold on, and he goes to his office. He comes back with a, two, a number two pencil and a legal tablet, and he says, take these, kid. I take them. He says, put the pencil to the paper, <laughs> and it's worth more than it was as separate parts. I go, okay. And he says, now get out of here. That was my meeting. <laughs> that took seven months. So I'm completely, uh, you know, I'm pretty distraught by it. I'm in the elevator. I think, what is he saying? What does all this mean? I guess he meant, I guess he does mean something. He says, you basically have to write, start writing things to have value. Otherwise, you're going to have no value because you can't buy anything. You don't own anything. You're kind of just bullshitting people. And... Um, you really have to create or manufacture IP. You know? And uh, 
Start, so I started writing, and I wrote a couple of movies for TV, and my career began because of that inciting incident with Lou Wasserman. It's so Is biblical. this what you're supposed to do? Yes. Okay. It's, <laughs> you know what's great about the story? It's so biblical. You your little Moses ascends the mountaintop to the 15th floor <laughs> and gets the tablets from yes. God, right? Wow. From the most powerful man in all of Hollywood. I mean, that's true. That's, it's just a, there's a beautiful structure to that. Jeez. Let's go everywhere together. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I said, you made it sound so much smarter. You created mythology to it. You brought everything. He, you informed um, it with so much information. Did you ever meet him again? I did meet him again. I, uh, I, I never said to him, I'm the guy or any. I didn't say yeah. I'm the guy that got up there and I wrote this stuff. But I would see him at the Universal Commissary. And he, I actually met Henry Kissinger through him because Henry Kissinger was a friend of his, and he would sit at this back table with Lou Wasserman. I'd go you know, like them, you know, and uh, I met Henry Kissinger, and I then later pursued Henry Kissinger. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's part of your serial. Uh... So, so that's who Lou Wasserman is, and that was my relationship. Now, do I pick one for you? Yes. All right, let's get yep. the glasses on. Okay, we'll go right here. Oh, jeez, this is a tough one. Is it Dennis Goy Goya? Dennis Joya. Joya, Joya. Dennis Joya. Who is Dennis Joya? Dennis Joya, I guess you've set this, the bar rather high. But I should tell the story in a very roundabout way, I guess. Um, <laughs> the, I got really interested. This is a typical, this is a typical um, account of how New Yorker stories evolve. I got really interested in, I wanted to write about uh, car crashes and automobile defects. And so I was one of four people in the United States to read the entire, what was called the Volucas Report, which was the internal General Motors report on the Chevy Cobalt ignition switch controversy, all 700 pages of it from beginning Were to end. Were you assigned to do this? No, I did this in my this? spare time. And <laughs> having read it, was no further along in my quest for an interesting story than I was before. So I was sort of wondering about what I, I wanted to write about this topic, but I couldn't figure out how. And I mentioned this to this wonderful psychologist at Penn called Adam Grant, who's probably been here. And Adam Grant sends me a, a paper written in an incredibly obscure journal years ago by a guy named Dennis Joya. So I read the paper. And in the paper, Dennis Joya says, I'm now a psychologist at Penn State. But when I was 25 years old, I was the recall manager at Ford. And I was the guy when the first incident involving a Ford Pinto bursting into flames after being hit from behind came to the attention of Ford Motor Company. It came to the attention of me. It came on my desk. And I looked at it. And then I went to the what was called the Chamber of Horrors, believe it or not, which is where Ford would send all of the cars that were in car accidents. Went to the Chamber of Horrors, saw this burned out husk, came back to my desk, and voted against a recall. Wow. And then had so the Pinto then becomes the most, it's, it's been called the most controversial car of all time. Exploding it, car. Exploding car, right. dragged Ford's reputation through the mud, caused millions of lawsuits. He's the guy who had the opportunity to say, to have stopped that problem at its source, and he didn't. Wow. So I, and he, so I just thought. Who was how, running the Ford Motor Company at the time? Who was the CEO? Uh, Wasn't it one of the Ford Yeah, Yeah, Coca. What? It was Lee Iacocca. Oh, it was Lee Iacocca. Yes, this was on his watch. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he, I went to see him uh, about two months ago. I got it. I drove out to, to College Station and went to see him in his office. He's now in his 60s. And he talked for about two and a half hours. 
And he did this thing that is so fascinating that people do, particularly when, so he's a man who is in this weird way implicated in one of the great scandals of the 20th century. Right. And has spent the rest of his life trying to understand why didn't he act differently? And so he gives you, he's, have, he's had 40 years of pent up Jeez. explanation. He's the fog of war. He's, it's, it's so <laughs> fog of war. Yeah, no, no, it is. Yeah. So I, I literally just turned on the tape recorder and sat there for three and a half hours, at the end of which time he convinced me that his decision not to recall the Ford Pinto was correct. Oh, my, interesting. Which I, in a million years, would wow. never have thought that would have happened. But the other weird thing is... You would have thought he would be, have thought it through and be apologetic. But here's the other thing. And what, he re was apologetic. Oh, he was. His point of telling the story was he wanted to apologize for his 25-year-old self. But <laughs> as people do in that situation, as they are apologizing for their behavior, they're actually justifying it. Right? This is like a cardinal lesson of human psychology. Wow. Most of the time, when, and I realize this, most of the time when people give you apologize, yeah. uh, apologies, yeah. they're not apologizing. <laughs> right? it's, a, it's a covert justification. Even though I'm, they're not saying but, they're yeah. saying but. I'm sorry I hit your bratty kid yeah. is, a, is the simplified version of that right, problem, right? right? <laughs> but, it, it's, but he did it so artfully and brilliantly. It was, I listened to the tape and I was like, oh my goodness. Like he won me over even as I was... Yeah. Um, now, what did you do with all this information now that you have? Well, I wrote a story, which hasn't come out yet. Oh, so right at the, we're right here at the precipice. Yes, no, we are. This, this is, but it was, um, but I, 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 it was one of the most, uh, I have to say it was one of the greatest in interviews I ever, you, you as, it, as it, I think as a journalist, you mark the quality of the interview by how little you say so if you're constantly having to ask questions, the interview's not going well. If you never say anything, it's uh -huh. perfect. And I almost, I don't think I said more than five words. I just turned it on and listened to him. And it was just wow. a magnificent, fully formed symphony, three and a half hour <laughs> symphony on, you know, what it was like to be a 25 year old at Ford Motor Company. Jeez, interesting. That is interesting. Well, we'll all look forward to reading it. Oh, in the New Yorker, I suppose. In the New Yorker. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So. Do you think, are we finished with that one? Should we go on? Um, I'm worried, are we going too fast or too slow, given I how many? I can't tell. The only thing I would add, to ask about that is, is that sort of an American thing, the, that way of apology? No, because we know the we saw... apology. Hugh, well, the fake apology. When Hugh Grant had sex with that transvestite, was that a fake apology? He said, I'm really sorry. Remember, he got, yeah. and he seemed to get forgiven. I don't know. Did, we, did was, he get liked again after that? He did. That was so... This guy's not going to get liked again, I don't think. No, I think he will. But that... Okay. <laughs> Hugh Grant is a whole separate thing. That's all about him brilliantly using this available archetype, which is the kind of stammering, <laughs> oh, hapless yeah. Yeah. Englishman. He made it seem, he made it seem like <laughs> he was like driving along, and the next thing he knew, there was a transvestite in the car. Like, <laughs> what? That's I hilarious. have no explanation. <laughs> that is right? very funny. That's and you, you're so in awe of <laughs> how brilliant that, that he did that that you let him off the hook. Yeah. Right? I think that's, yeah, no, well acted. That was, was good. It's yeah. really uh, All right, so should we, okay. Let me do one for you now. How will we know our time, how we're doing? All right. Well, we have a clock here. Oh, we have a clock. Oh, we have a uh, clock right there. That's how we know. That's why I'm the curious one. He's the intellect. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jackson. 
Michael Jackson. We're, we're um, melting down. <laughs> Michael Jackson. Okay, so um, after the 14 months of meeting people in the industry, which included Lou Wasserman and several other luminaries, I then, after Splash, I decided <clears throat> no more anyone. I'm not meeting anybody else in the movie industry. I mean, not deliberately anyway. I'm going to now just reach out every two weeks as a discipline to someone that's, uh, you know, not in the movie business, but anyone other than that, uh, science, medicine, politics, religion, art, all art forms. And Michael Jackson is an art form, certainly, and he wasn't in the movie business, really. He was uh, the biggest pop icon in the world, and I really wanted to meet Michael Jackson to try to understand what his... If I wanted to see if he could explain his brilliance, or I could understand it, and he, in fact, could explain it. So he agreed to meet with me after a little persuasion, and he came up to my office. When is this? What year? Oh, is this boy. after? Is this after? I mean, what point in his... How much plastic surgery he has? Not a lot. Not, well, uh, plastic sur not a lot of facial plastic surgery, but skin uh, his skin pigmentation had changed. Yeah. So it was about 20 years ago. Yeah. 20, could be 23 years ago. I should know these dates. So um, I meet with him. He comes in. He's, it's at the period where he's wearing the gloves, which is very relevant. And it's actually in this, the book that uh, we're hoping you enjoy. <laughs> um, so I say to him, can you please take off your gloves? No, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> At what point did you decide you wanted Michael Jackson to take off the glove? At the, when he walked in. You, this wasn't pre, you didn't say, I'm going to invite him because I want the glove off. No, I didn't think about that. No. It occurred to you as you... It occurred to me as I was meeting him. Yeah. Well, because I'd heard, first of all, I was already partners with Ron Howard. He had a slight infatuation with Ron Howard uh, because Ron Howard was a child star and he you know, had a very adolescent, as we all, adolescent quality about him. And uh, he thought Ronnie Howard was really interesting. And Ron Howard had been to his house in Santa Barbara. And uh, he said, he's a very interesting guy. <laughs> you know, he opened, I said, why, why is he so interesting? He opened a little toy box and we had to play little toys in the toy box. He brought a toy box with him. Not with him, but with Ron Howard, he had the toy oh. box. No toy box with me. <laughs> but, but I knew that he had that history of toy boxes and little dolls and things like that. So I thought, I don't really want to know, I don't need to know more about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what I really did want to know was kind of genuine. I wanted him to explain how, the creation of music, dance and music, um, and composition. And just as the minute I had contact with him, I thought, he can't explain that with those silly gloves on. <laughs> I, I don't think I could assimilate, you know, process the information with those little goofy gloves. So I thought that gloves in, in that moment felt like a threshold for me. I had to get those gloves off. <laughs> so I asked him, would you take the gloves off? And he stared at me as though no one has ever asked him to do that. No one had ever asked to do Probably it. <laughs> Probably right. <laughs> but he took them off. I was shocked he took them off. Because I don't think anyone asked, made a request of him ever, maybe. Yeah. You know, I don't think he was asked or told what to do. He just sort of floated around the, in the Michael Jackson bubble. 
And I took off the gloves, and all of a sudden, he literally, he became Mozart. I mean, he became a, he became a completely different human being. He explained music on the most granular basis, like how he created beats, the, how, where the beats evolved, uh, uh, just everything to do with how every, every aspect of music and dance and physicality worked within the system of Michael Jackson. And it was very, it was a method, method, methodology about it. It was granular, it was intelligent, it was professorial on the highest level. And you could feel you were in the presence of somebody great, as someone that was a, truly a savant, but could explain it. And I thought it was, it was a really profound interview did you, that I had. That sh did that shock you? Completely shocked me. You were expecting him to be inarticulate about his? I, I, yeah, because he did that baby talk, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny, in that, <laughs> in that movie, there was that documentary made about him very late in his life. Yes. Um, and there's a moment where he does for something. For Sony, I think. For Sony. Yeah. He does something very similar when they're, he, they're showing him footage of him in rehearsal, and he stops, do you remember this? He stops yes. everyone. Yeah. And he tells them how he wants them to do yes. it again. And it's... And he's and you, pretty officious. I it's, mean, he's... It's, it's like a switch goes off, and he yeah. becomes this completely different person. And all of that artifice is stripped away, and you see this kind of steely professional. The steely master in, yeah. in, in your, in the pre, you're in the presence of. Uh, so I was very surprised, because I knew just all the other, you know, the infantiliz infantilization aspect of him. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so I just thought it was, it was pretty, I just thought it was, to me it was profound. It was interesting and profound and I felt like I actually got to know something. It was inside the window of the soul of somebody that was really great, was gigantically unique on the planet and mm -hmm. that gave birth to this, this person. You like those. I mean, he was, a, you know, because as a, when I say this person, he's kind of a concoction on the surface. Well, because his, he changed his skin, he just in the process of changing his nose, his sexuality is undefined, and all those kind of rarefied questions were all floating around. All in the and all in the background, I know Ron Howard, had, when he was just the beginning of Happy Days, was invited up there, and they're playing baby toys and stuff. So, I, yeah. I, it was. Did you get the sense that he was rarely asked about music in that way? Definitely, I think I got. The, I had the sense that. He wasn't ever questioned, he wasn't ever asked. When he was conducting or creating something, it was just kind of uh, a very remote experience and people just did what he said. Yeah. You, you tell a story in the book about um, when you met Princess Di um, and you, uh, you, well you tell it about the ice cream. Um, mm. Because it reminds me of the glove. Oh, yeah. You it's, like doing this. This is why you're brilliant. People. <laughs> Wait, tell the story about the ice cream. Yeah, I guess I do like doing this to people. And in a reverse way, it's why I created the hairdo. But, but yeah, maybe. Okay, so with Princess Di, I, I, well, I also wanted to meet Princess Di, the most, uh, um, led, you know what, let me, I won't classify her, but it, we all knew who Princess Di was. And, um, and I, we all had deep admiration for Princess Di. And I wanted to meet, I thought I wanted to meet Princess Di. Send letters, I f foolishly make phone calls to Buckingham Palace, you know, like, 
can I please speak to Princess Di? Oh, I'm a movie producer in Los Angeles, you know. I'm yeah. thinking, you know, I'm trying with the old tactics I used to meet some of the celebrities of show business. Uh, but of course those things don't work. And, um, but then it seemed like about a year and a half later, I'm, I've produced now Apollo 13 and I get word that we're gonna do a royal premiere for the, for uh, the royal family. And any, you don't know who that could be. It could be Queen Elizabeth, it could be Di, it could be Diane Charles, it could be Charles. It could be any configuration when you're told that you get to do this. And so it happens to be only Princess Di that we're doing this royal premiere for, which was fantastic. So I don't say to her, oh, do you remember all those letters I've sent to you? <laughs> But what does happen is after the movie, there was a dinner for about 150 people, um, including Tom Hanks, Ron Howard, myself, and wives and friends and things like that, and important other, important other people. Uh, and I'm, I am seated directly across from Princess Di. So in my mind, I'm thinking, she, that's, she picked me. Just, <laughs> she, she did you get those letters. Did, you think she did the seating chart? She's like... I, th I think, I felt like she did. <laughs> I, choose, I chose to feel like that. Yeah. But in any event, I felt like that was my moment. And what we're getting at here is that um, as she entered the room, and I realized I'm sitting right across from Princess Di, everybody stands as the princess comes to the room, and she is just very attentive to the room. She's, you could, you could her, her humanity was palpable. I mean, she felt people, she responded to people, she acknowledged people. It was quite, it was beautiful. And here she is sitting right across from me and I'm thinking, I cannot conform to the etiquette of the room because I'll get nothing out of it. So I speak louder than I should speak. I violate the rules of etiquette because we're told this is what you're supposed to do, not do. And... Um, I ask her questions I shouldn't ask. I get way too casual with her. I mean, not lewd or anything, but just too casual. And then at the end of the dinner, and I get her to laugh. That was part of a goal. That was a goal. I wanted to get her laughing. <laughs> I felt it was like a date. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> that is the business I was in, transporting people to other realities. <laughs> so, so now, it's the, the dinner's over, and we don't really have a dessert that I'm happy with. And I'm, I'm going through this, I've gone through this whole jag of loving ice cream. So I, I say, can I get a, cup, a bowl of ice cream? She responds. She orders ice cream for me, because there was no ice cream. She gets a bowl of ice cream, and I, I'm thinking, this is great. I'm really scoring with Princess Di, and it's right in front of, it's right in front of Tom Hanks and Ron Howard, and this is amazing. And then I... I, I signal a spoon over to her and say, would you like to share the ice cream with me? She takes a scoop. And I'm thinking, this is like making out with Princess Diana. <laughs> this is it. And then I, 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 it goes even further than that because I take another scoop, another one, and then I say, would you like another? And so now if there's been five, four, five, six scoops taken, she takes her second scoop of ice cream, and now I feel like we're really, it's almost sexual at this point. <laughs> and, and that was the princess, that's the, the culmination. <laughs> that's how it ended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, there we are.
<laughs> you don't even know where to go with it. Well, it's my turn to grab your a, turn. one for you. Yeah. Your turn. This bowl. I can't it? top okay. that. Sorry. No, I think you can. Uh, Ron Papel. Ron Popeil. Popeil, I said. Yes. Ron was, is, the, uh, the uh, greatest uh, inventor of uh, appliances for the home, kitchen, in the world. And uh, it's hard to rival Prince's Die with that, isn't it's, it? <laughs> and he, of course, famously sells them on late night television, on back in the day of infomercials. He was the king of the infomercial. Oh. And I decided I wanted to meet him and write about him. And I will admit that in the beginning, my motives were not entirely pure. I thought, I thought I'm going to kind of, it was an occasion to write something funny and wry and condescending about <laughs> this kind of character who made these slicers and dicers and sold them on TV. So I went to Beverly Hills. By the way, impossible to track down. I managed to do it through a friend of a friend of a friend. I go to his house in um, Benedict Canyon, and such was my arrogance that <laughs> back at the time, this is back in the days of you know those micro cassettes that we used to have in, in tape recorders. I brought one 90-minute micro. Oh yeah, of course, it, yes, yeah. Because I thought he's good for 90 minutes, and then I'm out of there, right? <laughs> so I get in my car, I go there, I sit down with him, and immediately I realize not only am I um, a fool for thinking I could condescend to him. But B, this is not going to be over in 90 minutes. Mm. Um, so I had to, after 90 minutes, I had the humiliating thing of saying to him, I had to make up, a, I was like, I have to go to the doctor. Because <laughs> all I wanted to do was drive back down into town and buy more micro cassettes. Because the interview was clear to me was going to go on for hours. Wow. Um, and I realized all these kinds of, it was a really, really, it was early, relatively early on in my time in New York. And I realized it cured me of, I hope, of, uh, entering, of having preconceptions about people before you've listened to them. Mm. Um, that it was a really valuable lesson about, he was a guy who I had assumed was this kind of combination rube and rascal. <laughs> and in fact, he was a genius in a certain way. I mean, in a real way, that he was someone who had figured out. So he was one of the, or was the pioneer of the infomercial? No, the pioneer of the... Remember, he's the guy. I was, the writing about dicer, the, of the... I, I was writing about the Showtime rotisserie, um, the greatest chicken rotisserie ever made. You were but writing... I say that without irony. It is the greatest, <laughs> dollar for dollar, the greatest chicken, maybe dollar for dollar, the greatest kitchen appliance of all time. This rotisserie. Yeah, the, the chicken. Uh, okay. But he had had a whole long... And then as I discovered, as I talked to him, his whole family, his father was S.J. Popeil, who was the great kitchen appliance gadget guy of the 60s and 70s. Um, and also, do you remember the pocket fisherman? Remember that growing Yes, up? yeah. S.J. Popeil invented the pocket fisherman. And by the way, my favorite quote of all time, Ron's, was Ron's dad said, when someone complained the pocket fisherman, which was a fishing rod that was like this small, you could put in your pocket. When someone complained <laughs> that it didn't work, S.J. said, it's not for using, it's for giving. <laughs> <laughs> right? I always love that. But, um, and then it turns out his entire family, the whole clan, all have been in the kitchen gadget slicing, dicing business going back for two generations. It was a dynasty. It's a dynasty. And I ended up driving around, like, you know, southern New Jersey, meeting all of these cousins of his who would do knife demonstrations for me. And, and like, it was just the most wow. 
Wow. Fascinating, bizarre. And you know who worked for Ron's cousin as a, uh, doing those demonstrations? They would get a bunch of fruits and they would set up a stand on the Jersey boardwalk and they would do these things. Um, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Carson's psychic. Johnny Carson's psychic. John uh, oh, Ed McMahon? Ed McMahon got yeah. his start as demonstrating one of Ron's cousin's slicer dicer on the boardwalk uh, in the 50s. Wow. In other words, the circle closes. That's what you understand when you talk to these guys. But it was, I, I just, I thought it was, that whole idea of, was one of the first times that I understood the, that uh, genius does not just reside in big grand notions. It resides in little specific Mm. Um, incredibly uh, detailed and discreet moments as well. Mm. And that, like, that was a, it was a sort of a turning point in my journalism in understanding that I could, you could, there was as much to be learned by zeroing in on someone right. who's, you know, Ron's focus, I call him Ron, uh, <laughs> Ron's focus was on better ways to cook and cut food in the kitchen at an affordable price. That's how he defined his entire Right. Work. And your first prejudice about this was, it, was, was that it was just a, like a yeah. gimmick that... But no, it's beautiful. Like, it really uh, is. But there know. was a real thought. There was a lot of real thought oh behind God, it, and a sense of, of purpose that yeah. had some meaning. Oh, yeah. You would have never guessed that. You would have no. thought he was just a scumbag that just came up with this idea. <laughs> but also there was this incredible family story as well, because Ron followed the footsteps of his father, S.J., who was the you know, was really the kind of pioneer of many of these gadgets. Um, and the father turned on, gave up Ron and his brother for adoption, and then shut him out of his life. And so here was this story of this guy in his 70s oh. who had constructed his entire career in self-conscious imitation of the path that had been blazed by his father, and yet his father had essentially refused to acknowledge his existence. It's like this Shakespearean tragedy entirely in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, it's like... That's very funny. And he would talk about his entirely father in the kitchen. That would just break your heart. I mean, the, uh, the human dimension of the story was like... Yeah, and so you'd never... I, I get that. I understand that. You would never have guessed that it had that much emotion behind it. And, yeah. But, and that, and that uh, the family dynamics would have the same... So powerful. I mean, it was moving. When he talked about... He said his... He and his brother would, there was a moment in the piece, which I'll never forget, um, when he was talking to me, and he was talking about how he and his brother were in this orphanage because their father had sort of given them up. And on the weekends, it was a home or an orphanage. On the weekends, relatives would come and visit. And so all the kids would stand outside, and they would see the cars coming. It was like long driveway. They'd see the cars yeah. coming down. And they would say, oh, that's my mother, that's my cousin, that's my whatever. And he and his brother would stand out every weekend looking at the cars, waiting for their dad to arrive, and he never came. <gasps> just that image of a, can you imagine sort of an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old standing outside this big, you can imagine, gothic thing somewhere in the wilds of Illinois, looking at these cars coming and asking themselves whether it's their father, and it never is. It's just like, oh. Did that all get, now this all became a story? It's all in the story, yeah. But it was like so... I mean, I was practically in tears by the end of this conversation. And I went back. So it wasn't anything that over you would have again. guessed. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was everything about my encounter with him, with him was uh, completely contrary to expectation. Um, which is why, I mean, it's why the yeah. Michael Jackson thing resonates with me. 
that notion, whenever you talk to someone and you get something utterly different from what you expected, I feel like that is one of the greatest gifts. I agree with you. And then, and then it, it even becomes better when you, when you actually, there's a judgment, but when you respect the depth of it, right? Yeah. Um, or so now what do we do? I go again? Well, I actually wanted to ask another Michael Jackson okay. story, and it's my turn to ask you. Okay. Um, did I ask you enough questions about that? Yes, you did. Okay. You did. Um, wait, I'm now. <laughs> Sonia Schwartz. Sonia Schwartz. Sonia Schwartz. Sonia Schwartz. Okay. Okay, Sonia Schwartz was um, my grandmother. My tiny, tiny little Jewish grandmother. And you know the, the, uh, the size, very small. And, um, but she was the single person that, uh, I, mean, I dedicated my book to Sonia Schwartz, actually. Um, because she was the one that validated my curiosity at a very young age, like four years old, three, four years old. Uh, when I said, uh, I don't know, it just occurred to me. I was in, a car, in her car, and a, and a bee landed on the convertible, and the top was down, and I said, what goes faster, a car or a bee? She thought that was like a profound question. <laughs> Whether it was a profound question or not, she answered it seriously, and she kind of broke it down. And she treated it as though it was, had some real meaning, and the question wasn't stupid, and that questions were important. And... Kind of ever since that sort of moment, um, that moment, she was always validating my curiosity and that, uh, and that it didn't have, curiosity doesn't have real metrics to them. Um, it's a democratized um, tool that we all have. And she said the more focused you become on curio with curiosity and the more liberated you are in terms of asking questions and not having the fear to ask questions, um, that will be your strength or your power. And uh, uh-oh, I missed something. You, you, you're uh -oh. going too fast. Going too fast. This is your mother or father's? My mother's mother. Your mother's mother. And wait, you have to tell us a little bit more about, she has a. OK, so Sonia. Yeah. Tell right. us a little bit more about Sonia. Okay. So <laughs> Sonia was a, was a really kind of a rogue entity and that she grew up in the 20s and she, she was she was pretty fearless i mean she did things that were unpopular at that time she got married for a short period of time just said it's not working got divorced didn't feel like she was wasn't dead no fear of being stigmatized by it just thought nobody was getting people didn't get divorced but she just said you know when it doesn't work it doesn't work and she decided she'd get divorced. Then she started dating a variety of different fancy men, including Bernard Baruch. It's <laughs> my favorite. Isn't there a Bernard Baruch college in New York, or is that? <laughs> my no, it's not, it's another Baruch. But uh, understand, Bernard Baruch, <laughs> Bernard Baruch in his day is like one of the most powerful, well-respected. Yeah. He's in government, he's in the FDR administration, he's a financier, he's this huge deal. And little Sonia. Little Sonia found a way <laughs> to date Bernard Baruch. I mean, that's what she, she was able, and she wasn't, she was small, but she felt, she thought she was bigger than she was, and she thought she had great legs. 
And she thought, so she'd dance all the time. Sonia would dance and, uh, you know, she did different types of dancing. She would come to my house, uh, come to my parents' house, and every, every single week would come over and slip me some money. It was always a sneak job. Too. Were you her favorite? I was her favorite. And she would teach me the value of money. She'd always slip me a five or a ten and don't tell anybody. Everything was don't tell <laughs> Every conversation was don't tell anybody. You, I was like five years old. You, you, um, you told me when we had, uh, in David and Glad, I have a long discussion of dyslexia. Mm. You are dyslexic. Yeah. yeah. And you said when I this lovely hit of love when we were and I was interviewing you on this, yeah. you talked about how when everyone else sort of was despairing of you, yes. because no one everyone thought you just were a slow learner or a and Sonia was the one who was like, No, 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 he's fine. Yeah. So basically she starts me off with the curiosity. Now, every time she'd see me, not only was it don't tell anybody and slip me some money, it was like you're a genius. You're special. You're going. You are special. I'd, say, oh, I'd have my report happened. card sitting right there in front of the two of us with all D's and F's, and she'd tell me how special I am. I'm going. There's like empirical evidence here that I'm not special. <laughs> and she would say, just wouldn't pay any attention. They didn't exist. I mean, every comment about you're so smart. That was a good question. You're going to be big. She had all those isms too. Think big, be big. <laughs> By the way, I took all of those isms and I put them in the movie Splash, the, the comedy about a man falling in love with a mermaid starring Tom Hanks, and John Candy was in it as the brother using having a bunch of isms. He's Sonia. I gave all those Sonia-isms to John Candy <laughs> because I wrote the story in a script. Of... She, she wasn't still alive then. No, she wasn't still alive. No, no, no. The idea, she, fortunately, of, yeah. the idea of living to see yourself played by John Candy <laughs> is kind of fantastic. I know, <laughs> that would have been something, right? <laughs> so that's who Sonia was. You know what's funny about that is uh, in the chapter on dyslexia in my book, I talked to a number of successful dyslexics. Mm. And the thing that distinguished every story of a successful dyslexic there was that element. They all had one, there was always one person, and it was typically a grandparent, who refused to believe the bad news. Yeah, they wouldn't buy it. Like, so Gary, I interviewed Gary Cohn at the number two guy at Goldman, who has an ex exceedingly similar childhood. He's d severely dyslexic. Everyone thinks that he's um, an idiot, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and his mother, when he graduates from high school, is in tears because she never thought he would even get that far. Right. And she thinks the best he can do is be a truck driver. That's what she wanted him to be. And so everyone's expectation for him is like this low, except yes. for his grandfather. Wow. Who his grandfather was the equivalent of Sonia. It yeah. Just took it for granted. Had a different experience of him, saw him. I, don't, I wonder sometimes whether it is, these were people, his grandfather, I don't know whether this is true of Sonia, but dyslexia is a condition that is only made salient by education, by formal education. So the generation of people who did not grow up in going to college or where how you did in high school was the be-all, end-all are freer to see people for yeah. who they really are, right? It's this incredible gift. It's this weird gift you get from having uh, a grandparent. The freedom from that, that system. Yeah. yeah. 
So she, why would she get hung up on, on your some, D's? Some if terrible grades. How much did schooling did she have? Probably, probably not meaningful. I mean, it would, I don't know if she went to college. Yeah. But I, I always thought she was pretty sharp, but maybe because yeah. she was telling me I was sharp. <laughs> no, there is how. how and then I did with, with Grandma Sonia. We did other things. I mean, she was she was. I mean, it's everybody should have a Grandma Sonia, really. And yeah. um, but she would always. I mean, she did further th other things to uh, reinforce uh, curiosity. In that she would, she saw that I liked food. We all like food. But she'd take me to different restaurants, like at least two different restaurants a month. And then she'd find a way, she'd slip someone a little money like she's, so that we could go back and we'd see the chef and we'd see the food prepared. And, you know, she, you know, had a little, she had a little bit of a big shot quality about her. And uh, so we were always going, doing something new. A lot of it was about food, going to different restaurants. She took me to Hollywood Park, which isn't a restaurant, it's a horse track. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, try a little money here, try a little there. And, it was baseball games, Dodger tickets. It was always some new thing that she would, ex that felt like an experiment for me. Yeah. And so I did, I actually, as I say it, uh, we're having kind of a catalytic moment right now, but I, I guess she was one that sort of got me acclimated to, um, you know, disrupting my comfort zone because that's what we did. We did things that were exploratory, but they're always with a new vocabulary one way or another, and it was some disruption of my comfort zone, so there was a learning curve in that kind of interactive thing that we were doing. What, was she, she was in the hat business? Well, from Bernard Baruch, who she had these very nice dates with, he, <laughs> in the end, he you know, gave, gave her a little cash and said, you know, start a business. So she started the hat business. She had fancy hat stories. <laughs> There's something lovely about that. Uh, well, there is. <laughs> so that was Sonia, and she was she was great. And 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 I don't know how any of you are about this, but I appreciated her, but I never appreciated her enough until I started to really kind of gather, you know, some some success, some failure, some. Triumphs, you know, just the whole what life provides you um, if you have some drive and you're particularly in a business that I'm in because every new television show, every new movie is climbing up a big, is climbing up a mountain and anything and anything does, things do happen climbing up that mountain. And uh, so it does, Grandma Sonia conditioned me for all of those things. It's very beautiful of you. All right, so it's my turn with you, right? Yes. Yeah, because we just did Grandma Sonia. Ooh, can I want to pick someone else? Can I pick someone else? Well, I, I think. <laughs> you know what? I don't like these. These are hard names, but I think I want to. I feel here's this is what I like. Daisy Nation. Oh, my grandmother. <laughs> We're doing grandmothers now. Well, I felt like I felt right. Made sense. <laughs> uh, my well, it's funny because I had. My experience with my grandmother was she died when, before I was, when I was probably eight or nine. So I knew her, maybe, t maybe 10 or 11. Um, and my Im image of her was very specific. She, this is my mother's mother, and she, my grandparents lived in this little tiny house in the middle of, essentially, at the time, what seemed like the jungle of the center of Jamaica. <laughs> and my image of my grandmother was that she was someone who just 
bustled around and attended to my grandfather. And my, all of my attention was on my grandfather, who was this charismatic, learned, uh, imposing man who would sit on his front veranda <laughs> with a cat on his lap, smoking Cuban cigars. And people would come up, he lived on top of a hill. By the way, ever since then, I always only ever uh, live on the, in apartment buildings in New York, I've only ever lived on the top floor. Wow. I think it comes from my, this image I had of my grandfather being, living on top of a hill and just thinking, you always want to be on the top of the hill. Anyway, people would climb up the hill and come and see him because he was a man of letters. If they couldn't, many of the people couldn't read and they would bring him things to read. Anyway, that was my image of my grandfather. It was all about my grandfather. My, mother, my grandmother was this appendage who didn't say much and kind of cooked and 20 years pass and I write about my mother's family in Outliers. And so I sat down, sit down with my mother and her, and her sister and I interview them about their parents and I wanted to find out about my grandfather and they had no interest in talking to about, about him. They're like, oh, why would, no, 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 the story <laughs> is your grandmother. And I realized that the version of my mother's family that I had um, understood, thought I understood as a 10-year-old was completely wrong. Huh. I had come, even as a 10-year-old, I had come with a set of biases about who was important. Uh, and I had just grafted them onto my mother's family. I just assumed the charismatic man with the books in the library, with the cat and the cigar, was what it was all about. Yeah. And then what my mother and her sister explained to me was that, no, 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 that's, I mean, they loved him dearly, but that's all he was. Hmm. He, he was ineffectual. He, <laughs> he drank too much. He was a dreamer. He would never have done anything unless my grandmother had pushed him into it. The only reason they were able to go to college was that my grandmother found the money and did this and did that. And every, every significant fact about my mother's family history was the result of my grandmother's energies, foresight, intelligence, and I saw none of it. Wow. I, that was this thing that blew my mind. And, that, and, and, and furthermore, had I not systematically sat down with my mother and her sister and interviewed them at length for hours, mm. I would have gone to my grave with a fundamental misunderstanding of that, those family dynamics. And you know, that we, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how these kinds of conversations with people are most meaningful when they reverse your understanding mm -hmm. of the world. And this was, I mean, within the context of my imagination and memory, as profound a reversal as you could imagine. I mean, I literally had to go back to all of these cherished memories and say, the, the woman who I never gave more than a second glance at, I was so infatuated <laughs> with my grandfather. Hmm. She was the engine, right? Wow. And it, you know that, I just, it, made, it's, it's, it, it had the effect of profoundly unsettling all of my memories. And in fact, it, it's, it's almost to the point now where I have a very terrible memory, and I think I have a bad memory for a reason. And that <laughs> is experiences like that have made me so profoundly skeptical of the accuracy of my memories that there's no point having them. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm deadly serious. Why, unless you can verify them, unless you can do what I did and sit down with for four hours each with your mother and her sister and fact check it, mm. then your memory is taking you on a journey that is completely false. So 
I mean, throw them out. That's the, or just don't even bother storing them in the first place. It's just hopelessly, I mean, I, I mean that sort of so, only half jokingly. <laughs> Interesting. So does it... <laughs> you probably have a much better memory than I do. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, well, I mean, based on what you just said, I might. Yeah. You don't, <laughs> you're, not, you're not deliberately trashing. Well, I have, a sele- I have a somewhat of a selective memory. But I can, but I can, I can recall information that I've selectively taken away. But I mean, I, just for emotional, <clears throat> just emotional survival for me is, you know, any movie that didn't work, that poster is off the wall that day. <laughs> it's just, my partner, Ron Howard, who I've been partners with over 30 years, this kind of alchemy that we have together, it's just, um, he doesn't get it. I mean, we, could, we, we couldn't be more different as people, Ron and I. Um, but we do end up in the same place, like in terms of a value system and our sense of quality. Um, but but uh, he'll say, why did you just take that picture? That, that was a movie I just directed. Why? Do I have to explain why? It causes me pain. That's why. <laughs> um, so, um, but as far as your grandmother, going back to that. Wait, wait, but you know, I, yeah. I, I think what I'm, <clears throat> the, core, the interesting core issue here is whether you are comfortable with the notion that your memories might be fictions. Mm-hmm. And I am increasingly, I'm increasingly uncomfortable with that notion. In fact, and the more I sort of, I have, I have, if you read in the psychological literature on memory, you know, it, it endorses everything I'm saying. You know, all those great studies on um, eyewitness testimony. Right. Eyewitness testimony is, it's, it's usually completely bogus. I mean, you yeah. don't, you thought you saw the guy, you didn't see the guy, or you right. thought it was him and it wasn't, it was him, and you're, you may be convinced of it, but you're just telling a lie. And the question is, <laughs> do you, does that, have, does that have an impact on, on the way you construct your own reality, or, or doesn't it? And I made a very conscious decision right around this time that I was going to, uh, that was that, that understanding, that intellectual understanding about how, um, how much nonsense there is stored in our memories was going to have a tangible impact on how I, how I live my life. Um, and that, that is I was going to walk away from memory. But maybe that's a, actually a bad thing for someone in the book writing business to do. <laughs> well, but you know, actually, I'll, one last point on this, and then we're going to go to you. No, no, what's but, but I, I just wanted to say that... I think we're working something out here. No, no, we are. <laughs> because that I was filled with nothing but sympathy for... What's his name? TV. Brian Williams. Brian Williams, oh. So that you had... Said, what nothing you? but sympathy. I listened to Brian Williams, that whole story, and, you know, by the way, if you dig into it, the, the, other, the people who which were... Which part of his story? The whole, all of those stories he Even told. as recent as, I think today, he said... In the, uh, oh, I don't know that. Okay, well, let's Something take happened today? I think it was today that it was... It was he said uh, he might have had a brain, brain tumor or something. He doesn't even need the brain tumor. He just needs... <laughs> I was shocked to see... <laughs> No, I, I mean, by the way, that is symptomatic of everything that's wrong in our society. No, is that in order to justify a completely human reaction yeah. that is falsifying your own memories, you have yeah. to come up with a brain tumor defense. 
No, I read that today. he did what it, human beings do, which is over time, you change your memories to fit and suit the circumstances you're in, and yeah. you can no longer distinguish between the story you told yourself and the real thing. Every single person yes. in this room does that. Because he's famous, he got caught out. Yeah. And he was treated like some kind of leper for doing something that we all do. I just feel like it was grossly unfair of the mm. world in the way he was. The, of, the many, of the many things we can accuse public figures of, that's yeah. not, on the, should not be on the list. Wow, look at that. Okay. All right. Well done. Back to you, Brian. Okay. We're running out of time. Yeah, we are running out of time. So what, oh, Wait, questions. I'm, oh, she's signaling us to question. Can we do one more for Brian and then question? Want me to do a quick one? Quick, do a quick one. Quick do, one. Do Ron Howard, because you started on Ron Okay, Ron Howard. All right. So Ron Howard, okay. The moment you met him is the moment I love Okay. Basically, so I, I was, this was during the period of the year and a half period of time where I was meeting a new person in show business. I look out my window uh, on the Paramount lot on the third floor. I look out the window. I see Ron Howard. I think to myself, well, I haven't met somebody today. He'll be the person I should meet. So... I actually yell out the window, like, make a bunch of noise. Ron Howard, you know, like, he looks up, like, he, he's a shy guy. I think I scared him. I'm, and, but I call, I say, I'd like to meet you. I meet Ron Howard. He comes into my office, and he was just, this, he was just an actor on Happy Days. He comes to my office, and he has this glow, this aura about him. I literally, it was like Close Encounters or something. And he, I just feel the vibration of goodness in my office. Now, he says, I want to be, we get to, we get to a conversation. I, he said, I want to be a movie, a feature movie director. I said, I want to be a feature movie producer. So neither one of us were either one of those two things, but we wanted to be those things. Oh, you're both in your 20s. We're both in our 20s. And uh, so it was pre-Night Shift, pre-Splash. It was probably, it was like, it was 1979. And... I have no, there's no, speaking of evidence, there was no evidence he could direct anything. Like, he was just the guy that was played against Fonzie, you know, like, and, but, but he felt like he, like I said, he had this aura of goodness about him. And I grew up where my father was, his moral compass was spinning around at all times. So I, you know, my dad would say, oh, well, you want some, I, I want to build a little house in the back, go steal some wood. So I would always, there, literally, there was building a school behind our house. He says, jump the wall and grab the wood, you know, like stuff like that. And um, so it was always kind of advice like that. And so I knew, I mean, I knew that I was growing up that there was right and wrong. And I could tell there was a difference between right and wrong, but I wouldn't always choose the right answer. So I felt I needed a conscience. This guy looked like he had a conscience. Because <laughs> he was Richie Cunningham. <laughs> so I, I, I've only come to terms with this, by the way, just recently. Um, so he looked like he had a conscience. And I felt like if we were working together, no, once again, no evidence he could direct a movie. But I felt as though he would help me make the right choices. And so I said, sure, I'll back you. I'll support the idea of you being a director. And that was the basis of our partnership. I never told him that was the basis of our partnership. 
I think he, he just felt like, wow, I, Brian Grazer, you know, who's producing little movies for TV, he believes in me, and he's going to actualize my dream. And that did happen. But my... And you, by the way, your impression of him that he could be your conscience was correct. It was very correct. Because um, I still, today, I wonder, okay, there's, you're constantly faced with so, there's so much gray area in, in, in our world, and particularly in the world of entertainment, but there probably is in the world of, of anything, you know, but there's so much a gray area of, is this the right choice, is that the right, am I being greedy, am I, should I be angry at that guy, am I overreaching by being angry at that guy, I mean, it's, it's infinite, every day there's a hundred of those little things that are going on, but I, I had this Ron Howard here where I could say, do you think I should be mad at that guy, I, I am mad, should I be mad, no, I wouldn't be mad, uh, that I wouldn't be mad. <laughs> We all need a lesson that is we all need a little Ron Howard in our life. <laughs> That's the lesson. That is the lesson. The lesson. Okay, so now we have open. We have to do, we're gonna do questions. <laughs> um, and let's try and observe the rule. Ask questions, but ask questions about any of the people we have mentioned. If that's too challenging, we'll relax some of the Relax the I, rules. But I feel like, oh no, we have some takers. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, uh, this question is actually directed to the two of you since you were part of the subjects of what you spoke about. From my perspective, uh, you guys are in the world-changing business. You create these things that are consumed by society and it makes the world a slightly better place. My question to you both is, do you set out to change the world with your creations or are you creating for, creating for creation's sake? I will point out, although, I don't mean this in a nasty way. This does not conform to the, <laughs> but, uh, um, but let's not worry about it. Brian, do you, do you, do you want to go first? Um, I, I, I deliberately try to, when, I deliberately try to change the world in some way. I mean, I, I care about having an effect on the culture. Now, I don't always succeed at that, but I, my intention is to. I, any movie or television uh, show that I do, uh, within its foundational elements, it always has the intention of redemption. It, I, oh, I, I want there to be redemption. So um, I don't do horror films because horror films, within that equation, that formula itself, denies redemption. So I, I do care about it. Why, why is it so important to you to provide redemption? Because I, believe, I have a romantic view of it. I believe in it. I, believe, I want people to feel good. I, I want to take them on a journey, an emotional journey, and I don't want anything that I do to be predictable. Mm -hmm. So it has to live within those two poles. I, you want to have characters that you care about their journey, you root for their journey, but you, they can't be predictable or soft because that's no fun either. But I do want the movies that I make to um, end well emotionally. Yeah. Uh, Friday Night Lights, they don't win the game, but there's growth for Wait, those now characters. now you spoiled it for me. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you go, well, what about you? No, no, What's we're going to another question because we want to keep things moving. Oh, okay, oh, okay. Oh, so you gave that question to me. Yeah. Oh, I see. Well, I suppose I have a question about pivot points because it sounds like That's you're talking often about people who have influenced you 
at times that have been really influential. And I'm here with a bunch of friends, actually, who work at Wonderman, which I know you talked about oh, yeah, yeah. in The Tipping Point. But what in New York, I mean, the last 10, 15 years have been really influential. What if you could say one or two things, forget changing cultures. What are some things that you think have been most important? What would you keep the eye on the ball with, other than great grandmothers who you know, pay attention to what's most important? How would you focus that time? You mean in terms of people or, th or happenings? I suppose I would say in terms of stimuli. What do you pay attention to that matters most for yeah. what mattered? Grandmothers aside, which okay. is great. That's a good question. It's a good question. Um, once again, good though, question for you. does not <laughs> form to the, what is it? I make a suggestion, no one apparently, anyway. Um, what have I, what do I do in terms of stimuli? What have I, it's a, it is a very good question. I, I think, um, well, I would say that if you look at the, if you make a list, if I make a list of the 10 things that have happened to me, uh, over the last 10 years that have had the most, biggest impact on my thinking. The, what is striking about the list is that it's all, how random it is. That is to say, none of the things I thought would have an impact had an impact, and all the things that did came out of left field. Um, to give you an example, uh, I went to some, I almost never do this, I went to some dinner at, I was at South by Southwest, as was Brian. Yeah. And I went to some dinner thinking, <laughs> the only reason I went, I thought it was a dinner of like four people, and it was a dinner of like a hundred people. It was one of those, the, the oh. invitation was crafted so cleverly that you yeah. thought, oh, it's just gonna be me and X. It's 10 people, yeah. I, but then X was nowhere to be found, and it was like, <laughs> and then people would come up to me and say, what's your connection to William and Sonoma? And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is a William. Anyway, so I go to this thing, which I never would have gone to. And the first thing I did was curse myself. I can't believe I fell for the oldest trick in the book, which is you think it's four people and it's 200. So I, I end up grumpily sitting in the corner. And next to me sits down this guy who is so profoundly interesting on every level. He was, I won't say who he works for, but he is. He's this thing, he's like five, this is a way of answering your question. He's like five different things in a combination that I've never seen before. Like you, you know how you, especially if you, he's not from New York, but if you're in New York and you move in a certain world, you're used to things coming in combinations. Ivy League school, you know, professional parents, and then they have a certain profession that comes after that. So you, you start to do what the, what the, psychologists call chunking, which is where you accumulate different things and put them all together, right? So I can chunk someone, <laughs> and they live on the Upper East Side, and they have, this guy, he was from Ethiopia, family sort of off the boat, uh, a, uh, a deeply religious evangelical Christian who goes back to Ethiopia all the time to build churches, uh, an incredibly good golfer. Uh, <laughs> He personally resuscitated the Old Spice brand when he was at <laughs> Procter & Gamble. In fact, you know, the, you know the Old Spice ads? I'll stop soon, but the Old Spice <laughs> ad with that hilarious, enormous black guy, that's him, it was his idea. And he, bring, he gives this idea to Procter & Gamble, and they're like, there's no way. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is, this is the only thing that's gonna save Old Spice. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Anyway, 
but it keeps going. It, it just goes on. Like every time you turn around, there's some facet to his personality. That's and then I went online and I looked, looked at his Twitter account and it says, you know, wannabe archaeologist. I was like, what? <laughs> like, he also... <laughs> anyway, that's my point. Like, it's not... <laughs> you have to sort of throw yourself in harm's way every now and again in order to really find things that are kind of... that shake you up and... Um, I hope I answered. Good story. That was great. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Well. <laughs> All right. We're here together. So, this question is for Mr. Gladwell. I'll get back to you, Brian. No, no, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, by the way, the, the, the guy's name is Mustafa in the Old Spice ad. Uh, oh, that's right, Mustafa. Yeah. Uh, my question here is, the, Mr. Gladwell, that when you're writing a book, it seems like you're jumping from one point to the other. And basically, in one book, you could go through about 150 points. So it's kind of like a Brian, like when Brian walks in and says, can you take your gloves off? It's just a threshold. So for me, I'm here today to understand, that is it exhausting to go from one point to the other? And you do the research to the point mm -hmm. that it almost seems like obsessive. And to the point, all of us are obsessive at some topic. How do you continue that work over and over and start at zero, even though you are very successful in your career? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Um, once again, it doesn't conform. To <laughs> uh, but um, how do I? I mean, it's, I, it's a question about the episodic nature of creative work, right? Particularly the kind of creative work that we do. It's project-based. And a book is, uh, my books are accumulation of many different projects bundled together, sometimes elegantly, sometimes not. That's the case, maybe. Um, you know what I changed my life was when I understood, it, it, I didn't get this till I was in my mid-20s, that if you're writing something and you want to have very disparate pieces and you just want to put them next to each other, what you do is you just number the sections. I had never occurred to me. And in college, I would spend hours trying to figure out, I want to say this and I want to say this. They have nothing in common. How do I link them? And then I just realized you just put a number between. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, I think you start with a premise or a thesis that you, don't you? And then you have a, well, no, you should speak to it. No, I think I mean, I, I, think could, looks, I could do it, but I. It sounds more <laughs> exhausting than it is. In other words, I think that when you're tackling a very broad theme, the, each time you have a new way of, new angle on it and a new story to tell about it, it gets easier because you understand the underlying idea better. So by the... The first, when I write books, the first chapter you do is always the hardest. But by the end, it's like, boom, you get it. You know how to tell the story and you know. So it's not, it sounds exhausting and it's not, is my point. And Brian, a question for you. How do you tell a Tom Hanks to not to rotate your neck and don't lift your finger when you're directing a movie? Oh, I don't, I didn't hear that. I don't understand. So my, my question is that, how do you address uh, these famous actors that has a huge person? How do I communicate with a superstar like Tom exactly. Hanks? Exactly. How do you uh, convey the criticism that, look, you're not doing what I want you to do? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Thanks. Well, um, that's a very, okay, it's just, uh, you have to have a, a very gentle, and I, people do it all differently. I, I do it um, very subtly. I think that ta talented artists, um, there, there's, you can suggest things to them in the most subtle way, like, 
usually with a question, I just go, I don't know, do you, how do you, how'd you feel like that played out? <laughs> well, then he, he kind of knows that, so I'm not criticizing, I'm just kind of asking him. <laughs> with, <laughs> uh, um, but that's my relationship with Ron Howard. We, we've never had raised our voices at each other, and we communicate, communicate, almost, every, communicate almost every day for 32 years. But it, like if, I, if he says, uh, like, this movie Ransom, I didn't like the score. I hated the score. Hated it. He said, what'd you think of it, Brian? Uh, Brian? I go, uh, it's good. Really? What, do you, what, what does that mean? I mean, I really liked it. Uh, how'd you feel about the music, Ron? <laughs> you hated it, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about it. You know, like, then that's pretty much how I communicate with... Uh, <laughs> With Tom Hanks or Russell Crowe or Denzel, but just with a, that was that way. <laughs> That's good to know for our future interactions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my question, I'm gonna try to stick with the game and I'm, I'm gonna focus. Yeah. Well, what did you say? Stick I'm, gonna, I'm gonna deviate a little bit, but it, I'm gonna start with the game. <laughs> uh, pertaining to your grandparents, I also had an, itty-bitty grandmother who had a big personality. She was Italian and not Jewish, but still. And um, a lot of the books that I've, I've read um, from you, Mr. Godwell, had a lot to do with family influence, and especially what I've taken as far as parenting. And um, you speak to it a little bit in, in this book about the, the, um, the can't rather than I won't factor. And I was curious of the, of the influence of your, your families, both of you, and, and how you are today and how you would apply that going forward, you know, in, in your uh, mm -hmm. generations to come and so on. Well, my, uh, do you want to go first, Brian? Mm. Um, my uh, parents are outside of popular culture. So they, growing up, never, we never had a television. We never went to the movies. We didn't really go to restaurants. We rarely, in fact, left the house. Um, <laughs> and, my, they're also sort of oblivious. In a, my brother and I have, have a joke we tell about my mother, which is that you can add or subtract a zero to any number, and my mother will have the same emotional response. So <laughs> you can say, Mom, I made $100,000 last year, and she'll say, that's great. Or you can say, Mom, I made $10,000 last year, and she'll say, in exactly the same, with exactly the same depth of feeling and pride, that's great. Um, or a million, saying it doesn't matter. There's just no connection. So they, my parents are sort of missing key, um, which is really lovely. Um, because it takes the, it, it, they allow you to kind of, they've allowed me anyway to create my own um, template for um, who I would like to be. They were the, they were the least hands-on parents imaginable. Um, <laughs> in a way that you can only be if you are completely and utterly oblivious of all things <laughs> going on in the world. Um, so that, is a, uh, that has been an incredibly powerful, um, the freedom to sort of self-create. And Mr. Grazer, with your dyslexia and, and having an opportunity to, or have a similar influence, but it, with support and, or unconditional support, would you feel the same way? Can you paraphrase that? <laughs> yeah, no, just asking, really, just be your response to the same question. Same question, yeah. Um, 
I had the grandmother, which I talked about. My parents, uh, I think I just sort of figured it out myself somehow. I don't know how, I mean, you either do what your parents do or you do the opposite of what your parents do. So I put a lot of energy into doing the opposite of what my dad did. So, um, my mom was just, you know, kind of a neutral force. Uh, she was kind of rough on my brother and sister, but with me, she's kind of a neutral force. And I could, um, you know, get away with every, a lot, almost everything. So I don't know how to answer the... Both, both of us have made a very powerful case for essentially benign neglect from our parents. <laughs> this is, by the way, much. the first time this argument has been made on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in about, <laughs> in about 50 years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, now, our time is gonna run out, but until someone tells me, I don't see anyone. Two more questions. All right, that was... Okay. Um, well, first I have a statement. Um, Brian, your approach to meeting movie stars and networking I think is really inspiring. As a young person, going out and meeting people you think are important is really um, a good model for, for myself. But on a, what I really want to ask about is both, both of you spoke about this idea of coming in with preconceived notions of what a person is. Um, Mr. Gladwell, you spoke about um, the man with the knives, and you spoke about Michael Jackson. So both of those people, you had these preconceived ideas of who they are, what they're going to say, how they're going to do it, and then you kind of took yourself back and you listened to them when they did, when they did something else. How do you do that? Uh, what, what goes into that process for you, for you both individually? Well, for, for me, I have, weirdly, um, I do everything possible to, to get the meeting and do it under conditions where they want to meet me. I mean, I really try to, I, I, I made, I had fun with it saying how persuasive I am, but really it's just about contextualization. I create, I contextualize uh, the situation or the environment to the person in a way that they want to do it. It's not really, I'm not abusing them. And, um, and then once they agree, I have a, I, I set my, my expectations are very, very low. Um, not that, in that uh, I just have, in this it's an overused phrase, but I have a beginner's mind with each and every person. I have very, very low expectations. And then I, we get go, it, you get going. It becomes kind of biochemical and it, um, and it turns into something or it doesn't. It off, but more often than not, it turns into something that builds into an event that is, uh, enlarges my, you know, worldview. I, I think a lot of it has to do with how you uh, listen. Um, uh, listening is really, good listening is really hard. Uh, and after interviews that I do with people that I think have gone well, even in cases where I say almost nothing, I am, or especially in cases where I say almost nothing, I am exhausted by the end of the interview, which is as it should be. Mm. Um, I think people expect listening to be easy. It's not. It's, um, and I think that's the quality. When people sense that they are being listened to, they, you, get a, you get something very different from them than if they think it's just on, operating on a very superficial level. Um, 
I definitely agree with that. Same thing. Um, I and you can feel the, you, you feel the energy on both sides. You feel the energy of that person connecting to you because they're feeling the energy that you're very, very alert. And uh, that is taxing. You ever, it's edifying, but taxing. You ever see the, uh, uh, the, O.G. Simpson gave only one interview to the police. It was the day after the bodies of his ex-wife were found and whatever, Goldman were found. And if you read the transcript of the interview, what you see is that O.J. is essentially almost confessing and screwing up and telling three different stories simultaneously, and the cops aren't listening to him. It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Wow. It's their job to listen. <laughs> They've got a guy who ought to be the number one suspect, and they can't do it, right? Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things where you realize that it, this is not something that comes naturally to any of us. One more question. I'm actually sticking to the rules and asking you a question about, was it Mr. Goer or Joya, the, the guy? Oh, Dennis Ford? Joya, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned that if he was going to make the decision again today, he would make the same decision. That was what he said. And I was just curious as to why. How he well, you have to read The New Yorker in a few weeks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will only say that because the whole point of the piece is that engineers look at the world, and he's an engineer, differently from the rest of us. And so it's all about trying to understand what an engineer would see in that moment. And it's not what we would see. So they're not focused on the same things we're focused on. And they're understanding, an engineer approaches a problem with a clear understanding of the constraints, right? What, what are the specifications of the problem? And the minute you approach something with a specification, you have a different expectation. If you, know, if you know the car can't cost more than $10,000 and has to be designed in a year and a half, your sense of, its, of its how safe it's going to be is very different than if you have a naive assumption that says the car can cost any amount of money and be designed over um, any length of time and updated on a daily basis. And I suspect that one of the mistakes we make when we think about things like cars is we forget about um, that they have to conform to a fairly rigid set of specifications and that that shapes the collection of risks that are inherent in any uh, manufactured product. Um, anyway, on that, on that terribly... Oh, one more. Oh, good, we don't have to end on that. Actually, my question... Very depressing note, and that's why we're all going to die. Our... <laughs> but this is an uplifting question, I hope. Yeah, my question is very short and simple. Uh, how do you describe success, guys? And what are the most important qualities to be successful in general and in show business in particular? Thank you. Brian, I'm going to leave that to you as one of the great successes of, of, in, of show business over the This is <laughs> tailor-made for you. So I just have to get the question. What, is, what, what are the metrics? What, is the, what defines it? What defines success in show business? What is your success for you, and uh, how, how do you describe success, your own success? And what are the most important qualities to be successful for the people in general and in show business in particular? This question, okay. can I just point out this question was described as short and sweet. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I felt like a beautiful mind was successful. 
because a beautiful, I had an intention. I think I had a good intent. I, I felt as though the reason I wanted to make a beautiful mind, there were, that was a, there were, it, it had, it, it was well intended. I wanted to make a movie that would help destigmatize mental disability. I didn't want to see kids or anyone stigmatized by even the slightest disability. I didn't like, I didn't feel good watching kids get picked on, lunches getting hidden, uh, guys walking into telephone poles and talking to telephone poles and us just feeling like they're idiots and or dangerous when really in the case of they're 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 living a multiple you know multiple realities it might be they're often schizophrenic um, the movie is about schizophrenia but it's really was that was the intention of making it now why did I think it was successful it was successful to me because it I think um, succeeded at its intention at I think it um, so that movie I thought was successful because I thought it was well intended. It accomplished that. I got feedback, feeling that uh, from from my peers and from other people that it was successful. Um, so that I I felt good about it. I mean, it, it made money, but that's usually kind of secondary to me. Um, and I've made movies that have made money, but I don't think they were successful that way. So I don't know. That was a specific way of answering it. No, that's a lovely way of answering it. And on that. On okay. that note. On that note, we're done. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92YOnDemand.org.